Okay. Hello to a new episode of our STEM interview series. Today we have with us uh, Professor Simon Kohn from Flinders University in Adelaide, and he's also the boss of our STEM Cognito, my STEM Cognito boss, Baby Lee Marta. And it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for taking the time. It's lovely to be with you and uh, very nice of Marta just to say that I'm the boss. I think uh, in reality <laughs> it's the other way around. Ooh, I can't wait to talk about that and hear more about this. Nice. Okay. Uh, but before we go deep into that topic, um, maybe we should start talking about your research. Can you summarize the research project for us, please? Sure. So my area of research is in human disease, in particular cancer, and the fundamental initiation of it, which is uh, in many cases driven um, by RNA molecules, so small genetic um, anomalies that we call circular RNAs. Um, okay. These are these are molecules that are quite abundant, but they're also um, cell-specific and stage and developmental um, and region-specific uh, molecules. And in the case of cancer, they're often expressed um, in specific cancers only. And the real advantage of circular RNAs is that they're incredibly stable, meaning that we can use them as, as reliable uh, biomarkers for disease, but they also play uh, important roles in the development of the disease um, and the progression of cancer, which is uh, a very um, important area of research and something very close to, to my heart. Okay, that is extremely interesting. So can you maybe just explain to our audience what exactly are circular RNAs? So I think Absolutely. So I, I like to start as complicated as possible and then yes. try and refine things. So exactly. really a circular RNA, um, an RNA is uh, basically a messenger. So it's, it's the sort of conduit between our instruction manual, which is the DNA, and, and most people know what DNA is, and, uh, and the functional um, endpoints, which, uh, which we call proteins. So in between that, to, to convert the DNA textbook uh, into the functional protein, we have an RNA molecule. Mm-hmm. Now, um, in a perfect world, we have 20 plus thousand uh, coding sequences in our DNA, but we have um, more than uh, 200,000 different RNA molecules that have that can be made, so um, uh, made into protein. Circular RNAs are a sort of a, a byproduct of the processing of the RNA uh, molecules, um, and they are, as the name suggests, a circle, uh, and meaning they don't have any loose ends, mm-hmm. and so they are very resistant to, to any sort of ability to, to break down. Uh, and so, you know, we've been able to detect these circular RNAs in uh, infant heel pricks, which have been stored on on paper for over 20 years. So, you know, as opposed to DNA, which is normally really the most stable molecule, these Mm. circular RNAs are are right up there. um, Okay, that's interesting. So what can a cell use the uh, circular RNA for? Because we kind of know that there's messenger RNA, there's tRNA, they all have different functions for the cells. What is circular RNA actually doing? Well, the more and more labs that research it, the, the diverse the functions become, and, and also, I suppose, 
how they achieve these functions. Um, and really, as with any functional molecule in the cell, it's what it binds to. You know, we sort of picture DNA or, or when, when we're at high school or, or even earlier, if you're in a very smart country or smart school, it's often drawn as sort of this free floating um, strand. And it, it couldn't really be further from the truth. Everything is packed in adjacent to or binding to different molecules, proteins, uh, fats, um, other storage components. Um, and so really the way a circular RNA works is through its interactions with other RNA molecules, other protein molecules, and, and even um, DNA. And so these things were long thought to, to really bind to small RNAs called microRNAs um, and sort of alter their function. Um, but the more and more we, we look at these, um, the broader capacity there is for them to play a role from, you know, as I was saying, at my, my first um, area of research into molecular biology was in plants. And so we identified a circular RNA that could regulate the formation of the flowers um, in plants and sort of when we misregulate them, change their, their expression level, it forms these frankenflowers with, with extra, um, extra parts and missing petals and, and this, okay. this kind of thing. So, you know, in one sense, you can see a visual um, effect of that circular RNA and the dig, deeper you dig, you can find out why it's doing that. And that's all the way through to how it can affect certain diseases. So cancer, um, hypertension, uh, very important and, and um, deadly um, diseases and small contributions that individual molecules can make can be really be amplified into okay. a disease. And that's why we sort of why we research what we do. Yeah. OK, so how yeah, how does that actually work? So from what I understand, a circular RNA is mainly a regulator regulator for cell functions. Right. Yes. Yeah, so. Okay. So how so does it work? RNA, how, does it, um, how can it regulate cancer or other human diseases? So one one common way uh, it happens is a circular RNA has the ability uh, to bind to certain proteins. So um, there are proteins known as uh, tumor suppressor proteins, mm-hmm. and so when they're when they're functional in the cell, um, it maintains the cell in a happy. Um, non-cancerous state. Now, when they're mutated, uh, as we know, things like um, smoking, ultraviolet light, things that can damage the DNA and change the proteins, we know that can lead to cancer. Mm-hmm. But another way that they can um, be changed uh, in the cell is by binding things that inhibit their function. And so circular RNAs are, are quite sticky in that sense, and they will bind um, in a specific manner to certain proteins, such as tumor suppressor proteins, inactivate them, and that can um, change the cell to now become um, sort of a precancerous cell. And over time, as it accumulates other mutations, it can actually lead from a, from a healthy cell into a, a deadly cell. Okay, so you have this tumor suppressor protein that is there to keep the cell healthy, and the circular RNA is basically helping it. But when the tumor suppressor protein is mutated through different environmental factors like smoking, the RNA is not binding anymore that well. So it cannot really function properly. Is that how I understand? Well, commonly it's, it's actually, um, 
It's normally the other way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. In the absence of mutations in those tumor suppressor genes, um, different RNA molecules can bind to them and inactivate their function. So it converts a, a healthy protein, which isn't changed, into an inactive okay. form, something that can't produce its function. So it's it's sort of a double negative, which we don't really yeah. like to talk about. It yeah. can be quite confusing, but if something is in its healthy state, will suppress the change towards cancer. If you suppress the suppressor, which is yeah. what the circular RNA has the ability to do in many cases, um, then it can it can promote cancer okay. formation of that cell. Uh, so, but you know, circular RNAs can also act by binding other small RNAs, such as microRNAs, mm-hmm. and these the impact of that is is quite diverse. And so, a microRNA can potentially regulate the expression of hundreds to thousands of of downstream um, genes. And so, if a circular RNA is abundant enough and can bind and inactivate enough of these little microRNAs, then potentially it can regulate thousands of genes and really change how that cell behaves. That is, um, that is cool. Know, all the cells in our body have the same DNA. Yeah. It's really what parts of that DNA are copied, and so how much of that yeah. RNA is there. And so if you can change 15% of that by the, the change in expression of one circular RNA, it can have, you know, small things can have big consequences. Mm-hmm. I see. And you said that plants have circular RNA, but also humans. And uh, what about other species? What about the unicellular organisms like bacteria, fungi? Do they have circular RNA? I never heard of it. No, they are. And so th- they okay. are present in all, we say all eukaryotic forms of life, um, uh, uh, from yeast, protists. There's also, they're encoded on viruses as well. Uh, and within the virus itself, it doesn't make the circular RNA, but once it invades its host, um, the circular mm-hmm. RNAs can be made from their genome. So, yeah, they really, they really are something that crosses all, all species. Okay. And how come they have only been discovered now? Because I honestly, until I met Marta, I've never even heard of circular RNA. I, yeah, I had to study everything about mRNA and tRNA and RNA. And I think there's single, single strand RNA as well. But circular, that's to, to me completely new. Well, Why yes, so I mean, it find? sounds like you've been working hard on that. Hopefully I haven't made you sweat too much, but um, you're not alone. Really, circular RNAs have been ignored uh, largely for decades. Um, there are single examples of how circular RNA has been presented um, back to the 1990s, but they were really dismissed as sort of artifacts of what we call RNA splicing. So as the the, the immature RNA is converted to a mature RNA, um, it undergoes some, some changes to it, and that's what we call splicing. So the reason it's been ignored is because initially, because the way these are made, that they actually form, they convert a linear RNA into a circular RNA, even with high-throughput sequencing, the reads um, that cover that backsplice junction, which is unique to the circular RNAs, mm-hmm. were dismissed as junk. They couldn't really be explained. They thought it was... a a splicing event between two molecules, uh, and so they would dismiss them because it would askew the reads um, uh, or the, you know, ascribing of those reads to a linear RNA. So I suppose it's a combination of people weren't really looking, um, and that was made worse by the fact that 
um, the reads were just initially being dismissed through the standard pipelines. It was really only uh, in about 2012 uh, when they started to actually look for these reads um, and they could actually detect thousands of these circular RNA molecules that since turned into hundreds of thousands of circular RNA molecules in, in a space of less than 10 years. So, you know, we've gotten better at recognising them, mm-hmm. uh, and we can also use particular uh, enzymes which act by a little bit like Pac-Man. They, can, they act on the ends of linear RNAs and degrade mm-hmm. RNAs that aren't circularised. And so if we can treat um, an RNA extraction with this enzyme, it, it destroys most of the linear and enriches for these circular RNA molecules. So okay. a combination I, of those factors can, can help yeah. us detect them. And, and yeah. I was, I was actually just thinking how are circular RNA being produced? Because they're still probably being produced as like one single strand, but then somehow something makes them circular. Right. That's that's right. That's right. That's so the slicing when, event you're um, talking about, right? Exactly right. So we we like to sort of simplify what RNA splicing is. We're basically calling it cutting and pasting. So if you can imagine a long piece of string and you cut it up into a hundred pieces, and then you remove bits that don't look right, or they're frayed, or or they're the wrong colour, and you stick all the like pieces back together. In a perfect world, with your eyes open, you could make another linear strand. Mm-hmm. But if you can imagine, as I was saying before, these RNA molecules are not straight lines. They're actually really quite dynamic, three-dimensional structures. And when you have uh, a molecule that might start here, loop back on itself, when the scissors come along to cut it up and then the paste comes along to stick it back together, pieces that are closer will stick together more frequently. So circular RNA can be formed that way uh, because pieces which are perhaps if you stretched it out would be very far apart and they're very close together, they get stuck back at higher frequency. Okay. And, you know, my lab looks at factors which promote that that circularization and there are a number of those which include proteins that basically act as magnets to stick regions together um, sequences in the DNA which are also very sticky, yeah. uh, such as repetitive regions. And, you know, the, these enzymes called the spliceosome, you know, they're just like any other um, kinetic protein in that they'll act on things which are in closer proximity. Uh, and so, you know, whether correctly or not, we call them non-canonical or sort of non-common RNAs, but in fact, they are made quite re- reproducibly, and so we actually do think that they're meant to be made, and we just need to find out what it is they're doing yeah. um, in okay. the cell and why they're being made. Okay, That's, that is super interesting. So my thought that is coming to mind now is, uh, because I was just reading and writing about the new mRNA vaccine against um, COVID-19, and I remember that um, the researchers had to find different ways to stabilize the mRNA so that it's not being degraded in our body immediately when it comes. So they stuck this poly-A tail and they substituted the uridine with a pseudouridine. But what about circular RNA? Could that be an approach that could be used for future RNA-based vaccines? Because you said it would be or circular RNA is more stable. 
Is that also true in our body? It, yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I'm glad, you know, you, you did draw that conclusion because it, it absolutely does. A circular RNAs, even more than linear RNAs, can do two things which make them great targets or, or great uh, models for vaccination. As, as naked RNA, they have a, they stimulate a, a really high immune response by themselves. Yeah. So, um, and we're still really learning about how that works. Um, but by itself, in theory, this circular RNA molecule could act as an adjuvant to re- sort of boost an immune response. Oh, wow. And then they can actually be used to encode for proteins. So some circular RNAs, while we call them non-coding, do actually have um, what we call uh, an internal ribosome entry site, which is encoded in them. And that allows these molecules, which lack sort of the the, the characteristics of, a, of an mRNA, which is translated, um, they lack a you know a five prime cap, they lack this poly A tail, mm-hmm. but they have enough ability to to bind to the ribosome and make a protein. So yes, making a circular RNA which encodes for, in this case, let's say a spike protein from SARS-CoV-2, might actually be a very efficient way to produce the protein for a longer amount of time okay. and invoke a higher immune response initially. So really, it may be that holy grail of, of um, you know, immune treatment that, that um, is waiting to be developed. So um, it's not something we're developing, but I think it's something that uh, we've yeah. talked to colleagues about, and, and I really do hope it can be used in the future. They just need to make enough of it, I think. I guess. Okay. Nice. Interesting. I mean, there's still enough infectious diseases that we are lacking vaccines for. I mean, just today is World AIDS Day, so I think it's worth mentioning that. Good. Nice. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's there's a good reason why viruses um, are often made of RNA and are often circular. They mm-hmm. actually do have a stability um, the downside of it is if it's a an infectious disease um, carrying virus, then it's it's terrible for humans. But as a virus, it's a very efficient way to send its message around, and, yeah. and hopefully we can turn that around and use it again against some of these viruses to to help humanity yeah. in that way. Yeah, good point. And then you also mentioned that you're actually a plant scientist, or you started as a plant scientist. Now you're in fact you're in. Um, human diseases and specializing on cancer. Can you tell, talk to me about this journey? I think it's super interesting to come from plants and then go to humans and now specializing on cancer. I'd, I'd, I'd love to answer that question and I'll do it by telling a story. My, um, my wife is a postdoc as well. So she, she works um, with me in my current laboratory um, when we were both actually plant scientists when we started in our PhDs and first postdoc positions, we were looking both at molecular biology. She was studying the microbiome of plants, and I was studying how individual cells express uh, different transcripts. Um, and we knew this was intimate, you know, um, able to be translated to any system we like. So we wanted to learn as much as we could from plants. I think the real eureka moment for why we wanted to change came when she was getting her hair cut and there was a lady who was cutting her hair and, and explaining how um, she hated genetically modified organisms, how they were there to to kill everybody um, and 
you know, you know, would hate to meet somebody who worked in that area. Both of us obviously working in that area, she didn't feel like she had the ability with her long hair in the hands of, of somebody with scissors around it to actually express the fact and defend the research that she was doing. Now, flip the situation and, and explain to the person that that's doing that that you're you're a cancer researcher and you're really there to try and help people. It's interesting that similar kinds of investigations in different areas can invoke such a distinct response um, in the public. Now, she, I'm sure she was very well informed about the area that she knew about, but often it's 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 what that message actually is. And you know, we we say we evolved with our research. We went from plants to, to uh, mice to humans, and and now where we're going to be forever is is in cancer research. The journey was seemed like a natural one, but it did take us all over the world um, to different institutions and. Um, and back to Australia where we, where we started the journey. And, you know, I think maybe as opposed to, um, mouse testicles, which is one of the areas of research I, I did investigate, um, somebody you speak to will always know somebody who had cancer. Um, or hopefully it's not the person you're speaking to because often, you know, you can underestimate people's, um, people's lives by what they want to share with you at the time. So I feel it's the right progression for me and many people like me um, to have made and really cut my teeth in, in, in the plant science and learned a lot. Um, didn't learn about uh, the um, emotional impact that your research can have on people. Yeah. And I think, you know, had I known that the, the trans- transfer over to cancer research would have probably been a lot faster because it is somewhere that I, I feel that we can make more of a difference. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, to rather work on the system as RNA and then just try to try to use that system or that approach to answer different questions. It is if, if we can, and we always yeah. say helping one person is enough, but we can help. We can hopefully use our research to help more people. Yeah, that is really nice. Nice. Okay. Um, and Marta actually also just told me that you won a award, an award for a presentation last week for good communication. I, <laughs> I did. So I, I hope it's come across today that I can communicate. I, I don't know. I think all, all respect to you, Sarah, for, for making it such an engaging discussion. But yes, I, I was fortunate. I, I, I do feel there was some other very deserving um, presenters that would have that should have received the award, uh, but I'm very proud to have been given the, the Mid Career Research Award um, at the College of Medicine and Public Health at Flinders University. Um, we had an emerging leaders showcase, which Marta also spoke at. I have to say, um, and some amazing feedback I got from colleagues about uh, about her efforts. So she should have won, uh, but but. We'll, I'll take it on behalf of the lab. I think that's that's what's been done. It's been given to the lab. But look, you know, we were talking about circular RNAs, uh, myself and Marta, uh, and you know, the impact that that has um, clearly reached um, the audience. And uh, I was I was very glad to be able to present that and Important. and to use this opportunity to share our story and the research area more broadly. Yeah. Maybe you can. 
because we are obviously a sense communication platform, maybe you can just tell me a bit more of your motivation behind good science communication. Why do you think it's important? What is your motivation behind all that, your efforts? Um, that is a, that's a really good question. And one that's not often asked, what, why do we need to communicate? It's almost, it's almost you assume it's such an obvious answer, but I don't think it really is. No, unfortunately what not, especially we would like for many to scientists. Do is, yeah, yeah I, I, we, we are, um, you know, most of us were grew up as, as nerds at school and we weren't really very good at talking back then, so why should we be good at talking now? Um, but it is part of the job, uh, you know, and what we want to do is not only to be heard, right, it's to actually be able to spread the correct message Uh, and to not be misinterpreted, I think if, you know, if nothing else, the COVID-19, um, pandemic and, and all the stories and reporting around it leaves so much opportunity for misinterpretation, yeah. um, by the same person, not by different parties. The same person can often get conflicting messages. So I think communication is important not only to share the message, but to reiterate Uh, that message and um, I like the feeling especially when I get to present to people who haven't heard the story before that I've taught them something that they will then take away and talk to other people about it may only be one degree of separation yeah. from there but it may be two it may be three it may be seven Kevin Bacon might hear it whatever happens You know, I yeah. think the message often does get back to you to say, ah, oh, my son or, or my third cousin heard, heard you at school and really loved it and now they want to do science. And I think it, it has amazing. that sort of ability yeah. to, to reach beyond just the message. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and to see as Marta does very well, it's not a cookie cutter type of person who is a scientist. You know, you, you can receive messages from a, a vast array of people um, and appreciate that you might be that person in five years yeah. or ten years who will make the difference. Um, yeah. And uh, so communication in, in, in science really it can't be underappreciated. Yeah. Um, so I really, um, really respect what you and Marta and, and anybody in that area is doing to actively encourage us non-driven, non-naturally good communicators um, to get our message out there. So, well, that's so also not you. true. I mean, I, I mean, thank you very much for the compliment. I appreciate it. But I also think there's a lot of really good communicators in the scientific world. It's just sometimes they don't feel as if people are actually listening to them. I mean, communication no, and, and can be anything from, from presenting, like giving really good presentations, but also writing, obviously. I mean, I also know very good, amazing artists as scientists. Communication is any, everything, basically. It's not only talking. That's right. And, and, and you know, we, we do have that ability. Sometimes we, we often feel... Even in our field, we see good people presenting or, or um, uh, communicating to your class or to your your entire field and, and marvel at what they can do. But it's really a, achievable 
um, by everybody. You just need to be told that you do have a voice and that it can be heard. Yeah, and get more support from the academic field, I guess. Unfortunately, that is just, yeah. Some universities or institutions don't really appreciate the, the effort or don't support it that much, unfortunately. I think. Well, I think so. Well, uh, until it's too late. Until I it's too late, you, yeah. Yeah, I think, you, you know, um, a lot of sort of work that that we do can't be backdated. You need to get your message out and you need to, to have it um, supported now so that it can make that impact in future. Once it's there, it can be listened to um, and learned from for, for years to come. So you, we need to be able to plant that seed and, and have exactly. um, organisations ready and willing and, and driving that that communication. So. Yep. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. Some some are much better than others. That's that's for sure. Yeah, that was a really good concluding point, I guess. <laughs> Thank you very much, Simon, for your time and for this really amazing conversation. Um, so at the end Thank of you. our STEM interviews, we always have a bit of a random question game, which means I'm just going to ask you some random questions that more or less have to do with science or communication, and I would just like to listen to what you think about those things. Fantastic. I now I'm nervous. Is that normal? Does everybody get no. nervous at this point? <laughs> I don't know. Ask the other people that we'll I interviewed. See, see how we go. <laughs> yes. Okay, the first one should be easy, I think. What was your favorite subject at school? Oh, um, I, I'll, I'll say PE. Do you know what PE is? Physical, Physical education. education. Yes. Yes. So... The time when I beat my state um, badminton champion PE coach in badminton was one of my shining lights. Nice. I mean, science was great, don't get me wrong, but when I think back to that moment, uh, yeah, it always gives me a smile. Nice. That's, that's a cool story. <laughs> okay. And in one sentence, what are you truly passionate about? Um, I'm passionate about trying to help people who feel helpless. Uh, I guess um, a lot of that comes from losing people that I love uh, from a, a range of things, uh, diseases, cancer, um, uh, suicide, things like this. And I think I would consider my life cheap if I could help one person with uh, some research that I can convert my intellect and the intellect of people I work with into a, into an ability to save or extend somebody's life. I can't think of a better answer to that question. That is that is an amazing answer. That's a great motivation for everything you do. Yes, awesome. Um, what do you do in your free time? Um, I injure myself. Uh, is what I do. I have okay. a by playing a, a badminton farm. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Playing badminton. <laughs> no, not anymore. I wish. No, I have a small farm, and so I have a lot of animals around. And sometimes I can be more unpredictable than my children. And chasing them back into paddocks has caused me a number of injuries. So um, children and animals is what I do when I have free time and, and love doing it, <laughs> love looking after them. Nice. That's cool. <laughs> okay, the next question. What would you do if you were donated $10 million to your project? 
to my sorry to, if I was to your amazing. project to your research project. Oh, fantastic! Um, so we would we would develop so a lot of um, the research in my lab looks at um, a brain cancer, a devastating disease that has a very short time between diagnosis and death. Um, and uh, however, if it's picked up early enough, in many cases it's curable. So I would invest that money um, into a highly streamlined human biobank system with living organoids to allow us to capture um, enough material from patients to detect um, the most sensitive and specific biomarkers for this disease so that we could um, utilize a, a screening-based method to detect this disease as early as possible. Uh, that, that, yeah, that would, Again. that would be good use of that money. Yes, that would be amazing. Again, it's about helping people. That's amazing, yes. Whatever it takes, I think, yeah. right? Yeah, amazing. Okay, and the last question is, if you wrote a book, what will be the topic of the book? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's That's really... Dump me actually. Wow, that's a good question. Um, uh, I would call it the perfect answer to any question your child could ask. Uh, it might not have the perfect answer in it, but I think it would probably be the best-selling book just because of the title. Um, okay. <laughs> something to get you out of any situation. Um, Actually, Martha never seems flustered. She should probably write the book and uh, because she seems to always have an answer for every question that I have. So, and I'm basically a big child anyway. So, yeah, I, I think Aren't we all? that would Some be it. It might be child. a very thin book. It might only be a single sentence. It might just be mum or dad loves you. That could be the answer to any question. But, yeah, something, again, again, helping people. That's what yes. it's about. Amazing. I love it. Cool. Awesome, Simon. Thank you so much again for your time. It has been a real no, pleasure so, oh, talking please, to you. Please, Sarah, no need to thank me. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you for your time. And, okay. yeah, I, I hope I hope there's enough there for you um, to get some interest. And, and um, yeah, very happy to talk to anybody who's got some more questions about the work that Marta and myself do in the lab here at Flinders in Adelaide, Australia. Awesome. I guess maybe we'll get some more emails now. <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for watching with STEM Cognito. Find more videos using the search box or the drop-down menus above. If you think there's something wrong with this video, please use the report button to inform the STEM Cognito team. Questions about the video content should be directed to the researcher. You can find their details below. Go to our submission pages to find out how to submit your own video. And don't forget to follow us on social media.